The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. We're obviously beginning our study of the book of Hebrews. And uh, my intention, at least for now, is to take it slow. Now, the plan is to spend five weeks on the first three verses. Are we always going to go that slow? Probably not. Uh, I don't think so, at least. But the point is, I'm not in a hurry to finish the book. That's not the goal. We have plenty of times during the year where we break things up. we got ten weeks in the summer where we go through the Psalms, and four weeks at Christmas where we go through the Manger to the Cross series. And so we have plenty of changes of pace, but I want to take the book of Hebrews slowly for several reasons. First, God's Word will always reward you even the slower you go. You can wring it out as far as you want and there's still more left to wring. So as carefully as we could possibly study the book of Hebrews, there's still more that it can give. And every page of this book is going to reiterate to us time and again how superior Christ is to everything else that we could possibly ever run to. So we're going to get a heavy dose of that for the years to come. But another reason why I want to do it is because Hebrews is hard. It's really hard. And so you might think, and there's some wisdom in, just going through really fast over it because it's so hard. And maybe there's some wisdom in that. But it's hard. It's difficult to understand. And so that means that if we go through it really slowly, we get a heavy dose of theology every single week. And sometimes, I'll just be honest with you, that is a muscle that we are prone to not flex if we don't have to. If you're going to give me a choice to not think or to think, a lot of us, more often than not, are going to choose to not have to think if we don't have to. But it means that we have to go a little bit deeper, that we have to strain every phrase, that we have to look at things over and under. And some mornings, you're going to probably leave here going, Ah, that was probably deeper than I care about right now. Uh, But some mornings you might leave going, hey, I actually understood that, I think, and that was good, and it was helpful. But over time, what happens when we do that, and we take a careful approach, is that we grow in our appreciation for Christ, and that is the goal above all else. So that's what we're going to do. The question that we're asking this morning is why can we trust in the promises of God? Not necessarily what are the promises of God. Not even necessarily how do I trust in the promises of God. But why can I trust in the promises of God? Think about it this way. If someone took you up in an airplane and they gave you a parachute and you're thousands of feet high in the air, and they said, jump out, pull this cord, and the parachute will catch you. Don't you want to know, why will it catch me? Will it really catch me? Are you sure? Well, what if they then lectured you on how gravity works? That wouldn't be helpful. No. I want to know that it actually is going to catch me. And how can I really know that? Imagine that you have that call that you've long feared. It comes in, finally, and it's the doctor on the other end with a bad report. 
Imagine the boss calls you into his office, hands you a notice. Imagine the police call you in the middle of the night, and they say, are you the parent of? We have bad news. There's been an accident. Now, it's one thing at that moment to know what the promises of God are. To know this is how gravity works. Here are the promises of God. This is what they will do for you. All things work together for your good. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Okay, fine. I know what they are. And even better, that I'm able to recall them in that moment. As soon as the bad news comes, I'm able, these promises come flooding into my mind. That's also really good. But there comes a point in the grieving process when that question comes to you. But why can I trust these promises? How do I know that I can actually trust them? I know they're there. How do I know that I can actually trust them? Our text this morning gives us that answer. Remember what we uncovered last week. It's there in verse 1, if you want to look at it as we reread it. And in the first part of verse 2, it says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. What we said back then, last week, was that God has revealed Himself to mankind in the past. He has spoken to man continually and revealed Himself to, continue, to him continually, and He's done it mainly one way. Through mighty works, to be sure, but through prophets, whom He would put His words in their mouth. And they were appointed emissaries to speak on behalf of God. They could say nothing more, and they could say nothing less than exactly what God had put in their mouths to say. Therefore, they could stand before people and they could say, thus says the Lord. Their responsibility was to foretell. That means uh, to tell of future events. Like Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel. But they were also appointed to foretell. Meaning that what God said is going to take place, or what His view of things is, is what God is wanting you to know. I'm here to tell you, as an emissary of God, what God wants you to know. Let my people go that they may worship me, is an example of that. But here in the first verse of Hebrews, the author is telling us things have changed now in these last days. Although God has revealed Himself in this way in the past, spoken through His prophets, He has now finally spoken to us in an ultimate way by His Son. Now, what we said last week was that there may be a number of different ways that you seek out God's voice in the world. Using an example of people who claim to speak on behalf of God, here's what you need that's more than the revealed word that God has spoken about His Son to you, recorded 
in the Holy Scriptures. We seek it out a number of different ways, but we've said last week that He has spoken finally and authoritatively and ultimately through His Son, and we need no other revelation from God other than what He has already provided for us. Now in our text this morning, which is in the second half of verse 2, there's two clauses. That's it. Two clauses. And they are this. It says, Whom He appointed the heir of all things. That's clause one. The second is, Through whom also He created the world. Now, we can't forget what we talked about last week. That is tremendously important because it's hooked on to these two clauses. These two clauses are dependent on what we looked at last week. Both of these clauses then are illustrating They're illustrating for us why the Son is worthy of being spoken through and why He is the ultimate one to speak. Why is it that God has finished speaking with Jesus now? Why? Why is it Him that is the one who is worthy of being spoken through ultimately by God? Why is the Son the ultimate one through whom God has spoken in these last days? Well, the first answer He gives us is Point one, because the Son is the heir. Because the Son is the heir. In the first part of the verse, 2b, he says, Whom He, that is, God the Father, whom He appointed the heir of all things. So what he's saying is, God the Father appointed the Son to be the heir of all things. Now, It's at this point where we have to be a little bit careful. Again, we're going to strain every word here and make sure that we understand what's being said, but we have to be careful about this word here that says appointed because it can lead and has led so many in the past to the heresy of adoptionism. Now, adoptionism denies that the Son is eternal denies that the Son is eternal. Instead, it says that God the Father looked down on earth and He saw this man, merely man, named Jesus. He looked at Him and He said at His baptism, You are My Son. Today I have begotten you. Or as the adoptionist would say, Today I have adopted you. That's where it gets its name. The Father looked down at Jesus' baptism and adopted Him. And then gave to Him divine powers. And then there was a moment that came, as the adoptionist would say, there's a moment that came at one time or another where God the Father appointed the newly adopted Son to be heir of all things. So you see how that person who's stumbling on the heresy of adoptionism, would look at this first part, of, or this last part of verse 2, look at it and say, okay, there it is. He appointed him the heir of all things. There was a moment in time where God said, okay, now that I have adopted you, here is your reward. Now, if we're reading our Bibles poorly, we might come to something like that and think that maybe this verse supports that idea. Or if somebody is saying that on the other side of the table from us at a coffee shop, we might say, I don't know what to do with that. That sounds weird to me, but maybe that's right. I see it right there in the text. 
Of course, we wouldn't make it very far before we get to the next clause that says, through whom the world was made, and go, wait a minute, how does that work? But the point is, it can throw people off. Well, then what does it mean that the Father appointed the Son? If the Son is eternal, if He's not adopted, then why is He appointing Him at a moment in time? What is happening here? How do we understand this? Well, if you look at this text that's in front of us, the Son is clearly the main subject. And we've seen in the context, the author is stating why the Son is the ultimate one through whom God has spoken. Why is He the final one through whom God has spoken? And the answer that comes to us first is because He's the heir of all things. But even though this is about the Son's worthiness, that's what the author is trying to tell us, the Son is worthy to be the heir of all things, even though it's telling us about His worthiness, there was a point in time where a created world came into being. The world was not there, and then the world was there. And the difference was God spoke, and it was there. There was a point in time where the world was created. Just like there was a point in time where, there was a world, where the world was created, there was also a point in time where God appointed that creation to Christ. Gave it to Him, essentially, as a gift. The world created did have a beginning. So there was a point in time where Christ was appointed to be the heir of the created universe. As if it was a gift presented at that moment in time to Him. So if we put this together, then the reason that the Son is the final one through whom God has spoken is because all of the created order, after it was created, was handed over to His custody. The entire created world is handed over to the custody of the Son to do as He pleased. Okay, so you make it through all of that, and you think through all of that, and let's suppose you accept all of that. That's great, but what does it actually mean to me that He is the heir of all things? To put it simply, He owns it all. He owns it all. It is all His. The author is going through seven facts about the Son of God that show why God is speaking through Him in these last days and why that's best for us. And this first reason is that all creation belongs to Him. Every ounce of it is His. Every planet and every star and every galaxy in the universe known and unknown, is to be possessed by the air. It was all created for Him. There is not one molecule in this universe that was not created for Him. The heavenly realms and all of their majesty, which many of us have never seen, are all His The space between the very smallest atoms 
that make up the eyelash that fell on your cheek and was swept away belongs to Him too. Everything from top to bottom, its purpose is ultimately for the service of Him. And only Him. All of the created order is handed over to His custody. Now, one of the reasons that you have children is so that the things that your family amasses over the course of your life have somewhere to go when you die, right? Your children are going to be the benefactors of whatever it is that you possess. So, technically speaking, if you're thinking about it right now in perhaps the most morbid way, the possessions of the mother and father ultimately belong to the sons and daughters of the family, since they stand to inherit it. My children make this as weird as possible when they discuss this from time to time, and I can hear them debating over what of mine that they're going to get when I die. And I'm in there thinking, when I die of natural causes, right? Like, I don't want to amass enough that they want to kill me. But this is normally the case. Normally, in the course of events, the heir comes to take possession of the property following the death of the property owner. Owner of the property dies and turns over the custody to the heir. But this is where our story here in this passage takes a bit of a turn. We're going to see the second reason why the Son is the ultimate and final one through whom God has spoken, and it's this, because the Son is the Creator of the world. Son is the Creator of the world. Look at the last part of verse 2. It says, we'll go all the way back to the beginning of verse 2, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Now, we're probably, I'm guessing, not used to thinking about creation in this way. Through whom God created the world. We're, we're used to seeing it in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or, or just another verse later, Genesis 1.3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So we're used to hearing from the time we're little, if we grew up in church especially, God created the world out of nothing. And we often then are tempted to think about the creation account almost in a Jewish kind of way. That here is God, this spiritual being named Yahweh, that spoke into nothing and created every, everything that we can see. Things we, we can't see is all created by Him. He just spoke and there it was. But the New Testament authors are coming in to help us understand better that the word God in the account of creation is shorthand for all three persons of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
So that what we're seeing here in Hebrews is that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is actually carrying out the plans and directions of the Father in creation. That God is speaking through His Son to create the world and everything in it, seen and unseen. John 1.3 fills this out even more. All things were made through Him. Speaking of the Logos here. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Or 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things, and through whom we exist. Or Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Speaking of the Son. So the world, meaning everything that is made, seen and unseen, were made through the agency, the activity of the Son. But if you want to add one more wrinkle to the story, the Spirit is also active in the creative event. We read in Genesis 1-2, the verse in between those two that I read earlier. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's the Spirit. They're active too in all of creation. So creation was not only a work of God the Father, but it was through God the Son, and it was also by God the Holy Spirit. It was a full Trinitarian effort. I am not asking for you to understand all of that from top to bottom. All I'm asking is that we accept what God's Word says is true and we trust in it. So here is the Son who is the heir of all things. Meaning that everything on earth that has its existence, that includes you, were created for Him. But since all things were created through Him, that makes Him not only the heir, but also the owner. Do you see that relationship? Things were created through Him and for Him. So He's the heir in that He stands to inherit it, but in a weird turn of events, He is also the owner since it was created through Him. So how does He as heir, come to possess heaven and earth that he also owns. If the heir possesses the possession after the death of the owner, how does the heir then come to possess when he is the owner? If you'll remember, there is a story that occurs after the resurrection where Jesus meets his disciples on a mountainside. And he comes to them, he's, this is after the resurrection, 
And we see it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, and verse 18. You probably come to know it as the Great Commission. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see what's being communicated there? The Son of God, as heir of all creation, came into possession, finally, of His inheritance by dying to save it. By redeeming it from the grave. Although all of creation was created through Him and for Him, what happened to it? It rebelled. We rebelled. We sinned against God and we wanted nothing to do with Him. But wait a minute. You were created for Him. What right do you have to rebel? What right do you have to sin against Him? But that's what we did. We rebelled. We ran away. We said, I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with your instructions. I want nothing to do with holiness. So as owner, as heir, as rightful possessor of all the world and everything in it, what does he now have the right to do? Destroy it. Wipe it clean. He has the right to deal with us however He wants. But what's happening here in the story of the Gospel is that although Christ sees us as rebellious and sinful, rather than wiping us off the face of the earth as He had every right to do as owner and as heir, he redeemed us instead by dying in our place. So that the wrath of God that was reserved for you and me, He took on the cross as every single one of the songs that we sang this morning illustrates. And by dying the death that we deserve and rising from the dead, He now comes to be the rightful possessor as heir of all of creation. So he stands before his disciples and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you were to even go back into the book of Daniel in chapter 7, you would see there the depiction there that Daniel gives of a future event where one like the Son of Man comes riding on the clouds, presents himself before the, the Ancient of Days, and there is given a crown of authority. And we see in the resurrection account, even as Jesus walks to the cross, where He tells everybody around Him, including the high priest of Israel, you will see this event take place. Jesus now has authority and power. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth by virtue of His death and resurrection. Now, there's a lot of thinking to do in the book of Hebrews. Even in two clauses, there's a lot of thinking to do. And it's often 
difficult. We have to wrestle with it and go, man, I don't get that, or I don't understand that, or man, that's hard for me to wrap my mind around. But the better we come to understand Jesus, the more we come to understand the significance of our faith in Him. So then we have to ask the question, at the end of all that, why is it important that you understand that Jesus is heir of all things and through Him the world was created? Remember that this is just a little piece in a bigger puzzle that's really saying in these last days, God the Father has spoken to us by His Son. So Jesus, being the heir of all things and through whom the world was created, is meant to tell you why He is the one through whom God spoke in these last days. So the reason why this is important is because when Jesus speaks, He speaks as owner. He speaks as one with authority. Not merely messenger, as we see in the previous verse, where God puts His words in the mouth of a prophet and says, say this and nothing more and nothing less. And the prophet comes before the people and says, thus saith the Lord, don't shoot the messenger, I'm just carrying the mail. When Jesus speaks, He speaks as owner of what He's speaking to. Jesus speaks as one with authority. He is prophet, definitely, because He speaks on behalf of God. And God is speaking to us through Him. But if we stop there, that He's merely prophet, we end up with Islam, not Christianity. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, whom we worship as Jesus Christ, is King. And He speaks as the one that owns it all. Now, what does that mean for me? Listen to me really closely on this. There's a big therefore. Therefore, His commands are paramount. His commands are paramount. But His promises are sure. As owner, as one who has ultimate authority, His commands are paramount, but His promises are sure. I want you to think about the verse we just read in the Great Commission for just a second, to just illustrate this exactly. Jesus comes to His disciples and He says to them in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. But what happens next? What comes right after that? There's a command and a promise. Starts with therefore. Because all authority has been given to me, therefore, command, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the command. Because I have, been, I have all authority in heaven and earth, here is what you must do. He has given you, church, a mission. 
And this is your mission. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Why are all the commands necessary? Well, the commands are necessary because He is the owner and therefore has the right. His commands are paramount. But how does it end? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is the promise. The promise is that I'm going to be with you in everything that you do. How? How can I be sure that 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 promise is actually going to be fulfilled? That you are going to be with me and you're going to walk with me wherever I go. And when I go into hard things, that you're going to be there with me when I do that. How can I be sure of that? Because I own it all. From top to bottom, it's mine. Perhaps some of you have thought that there might be some other means by which you might be saved other than trusting in Christ alone. Maybe you have reasoned with yourself in a way that you consider to be humility That if I'm standing before God on judgment day and He were to ask me why should I let you in? Let's say He were to pose that question. My answer would be I just try to be a good person. I have found salvation another way than Christ. Just trying to be good. But do you understand that this denies Christ as owner and as heir of all creation who says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's not humility at all. It's actually an outright denial of Christ who created you, whom you were created for. Or perhaps, maybe you've thought arrogantly, if there is a God, and if I do stand before Jesus on Judgment Day, here's what I'm going to tell Him. i gotta, I got a bone to pick with Him. But you have to understand the arrogance of that statement when He owns every molecule that comprises your tongue. How arrogant would it be to think that then you are going to be able to control your mouth when you stand before Him, as the Scriptures tell us, all creation is silent. I would urge you instead, humble yourself before Christ, who is your Maker, for whom you were created. Repent of your arrogance. Ask for forgiveness, trust yourself to His words, submit to Him wholly, and follow Him truly all the days of your life. But then what happens? What comes next? Brothers and sisters, His commands are paramount, but I want you to consider the many promises that God gives to us in Scripture that are sure 
on the basis of the Son's ownership. Because Jesus owns it all, He can make these promises to you and they can be sure. So He can tell you in Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He can tell you in Matthew 5.8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He can tell you in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He can tell you in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 8, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He can tell you in Matthew 11, Matthew 5, 11 to 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He can promise you in Matthew 10, 19, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. We could go on and on and on forever just reading the promises that are woven throughout all of Scripture from beginning to end. But the point is this, that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Why? Because He's the owner. Because He's the heir. It was created through Him. And for him. So when the call comes from the doctor, or the boss calls you in with bad news, or the police hang up the telephone, and all of those promises come flooding into your mind, how do you know that these promises are actually going to be accomplished? How do you know that you can trust that the parachute is actually going to catch you? Because the one making the promise owns it all. When mom and dad say to the kids, there's ice cream after dinner. There is ice cream after dinner. No, there's not ice cream after dinner, my kids, just know. When Jesus says you can take these promises to the bank, then they are more sure than the nose on your face because He owns it all. So what does that mean then? Trust in the promises of God. Here's where the rubber meets the road. This is where it comes down to the reality of the passage. Are you going to trust it or not? See, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the trial and the difficulty, I don't have any other option but to trust or to deny. That's it. So 
So what are you going to do? And I don't get to see how it ends up. I may never get to see how it finishes out. But, but I got news for you. Young or old, at some point, death is coming for all of us. You're either in the middle of a trial, you're about to be in a trial, or you've just come out of a trial. And you're getting ready to go into another one. And I don't always get to see how it's going to flush out. In fact, it wouldn't be faith if I did. It wouldn't be called trust if I knew how it was going to end up. But what's being communicated here, this is why it's so important for us to wrap our minds around. The assurance that we have comes from not just some guy, but from the owner of it all who says, I got it. You're going to have to trust me on this one. Now that's a significant promise because of the one Who's making it? Not only in what is promised, that all things work together for good. That he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him not graciously give us all things? Those are spectacular promises, but they're meaningless if they're made by some regular guy. But if they're made by the owner, if they're made by the heir, for whom all things were created, and through whom all things were created. And those promises you can take to the bank. They're sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us a supernatural kind of trust. That it would grow and abound. And no matter what the trial is, no matter what the hardship is that we're in the middle of, that you would give us a supernatural ability to move through it. Your word tells us that the kingdom is entered through suffering. That we follow Christ who suffered before us. And if they hated Him, they're going to hate us. We know that that's true. We know that there will be much suffering in this world, even not at the hands of sinful people. Just as a result of living in a fallen world, we know there's going to be suffering. We pray that You would give us faith. Trust that your promises are true. Even if we don't see the outcome. Even if it looks really bleak to us. Even if the light at the end of the tunnel seems like it's not there. Even when darkness seems our only friend. Pray that you would give us trust that your promises are true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.